0: Welcome to the United Nations Security Council. The one thing you need to know is that the Security Council is the most significant part of the UN because it's supposed to protect and maintain international peace and security in the world. No, we have the vote now. They are voting. There are the hands raised. China's hands not raised, so it's not voted for the resolution. Now, who's against? The Russians are vetoing. This resolution does not go ahead. No surprise there. 162nd meeting of the Security Council is called to order. The agenda for this meeting is maintenance of international peace and security, non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. The agenda is hereby adopted. Hello, and welcome to another episode of What in the World? International Relations Explained, a political theme podcast, which aims to give accessible explanations to some of the world's most pressing matters and issues that we should all be a little bit more informed about. I'm Sam, your host, and I hold two top degrees in international relations and international security, and I have a real passion for foreign affairs. In previous episodes, we've covered a range of topics from US foreign policy under uh, the new president Joe Biden to the Russia-China relationship, and we will continue to look at a range of topics as this podcast progresses. I aim to keep each podcast episode around 25 to 30 minutes to keep it accessible and to keep it interesting, because some podcasts out there do go on for much longer and people lose interest, and which isn't fair because some of these things that they talk about are so important in today's world. So before we get into today's episode, as I've been saying over previous weeks, thank you so much for the support I've been getting so far, and thank you for all the returning listeners. And also, if this is your first podcast, thank you so much for tuning in and giving me a chance. So let's get into today's episode. This is something that is often overlooked in foreign affairs, although it is one of the most important organisational bodies, and many of its decisions that it makes affects the way wars play out, it affects diplomatic missions, and it affects international peacekeeping. And today we're going to be looking at the United Nations Security Council. The Security Council, over its years of being there, has attracted huge amounts of criticism from countries and campaigners alike, all wanting the Security Council to be reformed to make it much more effective at maintaining international peace. So, we will discuss today the history of the United Nations Security Council, what it actually does, If the Security Council is an outdated organisation and what efforts are being made to reform this vitally important branch of the United Nations. So the idea of the United Nations did not come about after World War Two, as many people out there think. But actually it came about during World War Two, towards the latter part of the war. As the Allied leaders saw that victory was in their path and in their hands basically... They had to decide what victory would look like and how they could ensure that international peace remained after this disastrous war in both Europe and the Pacific. And there were many conferences upon which the United Nations was born. And the first meeting was held after uh, the war in London. But the United Nations Security Council was established in the UN Charter the binding document that sets out many of the rules, not just for the UN, but for the international systems, that the members of the UN are supposed to abide by. And in regards to the Security Council, it states in the Charter that it was set up in order to promote the establishment and maintenance of international peace and security. The Security Council is the only body in the United Nations where its decisions are legally binding. So what the Security Council says, it goes, in theory at least. If the United Nations Security Council makes a resolution, and a resolution is a term used to describe their rulings, their agreements, treaties, so forth, countries must abide by what is in it. So, for example, if the resolution sets out economic sanctions against a country, all other UN member states must embark on such sanctions and follow the resolution. This is very different from the General Assembly, which is another part of the UN, where their agreements set out there are not legally binding, but rather recommendations. However, the General Assembly's uh, resolutions have uh, a lot of clout, and if uh, they gather a lot of support, countries feel pressured to abide by them. There is no legal mandate on any General Assembly uh, rulings. So the Security Council is truly where the power lies. Now I'm going to set out how the Security Council works because this is hugely important and is actually where much of the criticism is directed to. So unlike the General Assembly where all 193 members of the UN have a vote, so it's one member, one vote, the Security Council works very differently. It has only 15 members who are split into two groups, uh, the permanent members and the non-permanent members. So the permanent members are made up of only five countries, and they are referred to as the P5. They are the United States, the United Kingdom, France, the People's Republic of China, and Russia, uh, which used to be the Soviet Union. Do you notice anything about these countries? We've talked about World War Two. Yes, they are the victors of World War Two. So these countries had won against the fascists in Europe and the Pacific, and they had put themselves in charge of ensuring and maintaining international peace and security. So they became the Permanent Five. They are permanently on the Security Council, unlike the non-permanent members, so the 10 non-permanent members who are not set in stone. So these members are elected by the General Assembly to serve two year terms and there are certain rules as to what countries can be elected because regional quotas are needed. But I'll go into that uh, a bit later because uh, it's not always been like that and it's actually part of some uh, reform efforts. But other than being permanent and non-permanent, what's the difference between these two? And this is something hugely important and controversial. And it's called the veto power so the p5 hold what is called the veto power whereas the permanent members do not the veto power is the power to basically strike down any proposed resolution if any of the p5 votes no on a resolution it's basically over whereas if one of the non-permanent members votes no and all the p5 vote yes uh the resolution passes however The votes aren't purely yay and nay, yes and no. There is such thing called an abstention, meaning they don't vote yes or no. And it effectively still is a disapproval because you're not voting yes, you don't agree with it. But uh, they don't disagree so much that they would use their veto and end the resolution. Now, why do only five out of 193 countries have a veto? And we have to travel a little bit back in time to answer this question. So before the United Nations and during the interwar period, so the period between World War I and World War II, there was an organisation called the League of Nations. And it was basically uh, the precursor to the United Nations. Or at least it had the aims of what modern day United Nations has, to maintain international security and peace. And while the features of the League of Nations after another podcast episode, I do want to say that the League of Nations, although it ultimately failed, it wasn't all a disaster in many areas. Yes, it was played by voting issues. Yes, there was corruption. Yes, it was ineffective. But there were many areas where it was effective, and I'll cover this sometime in the future. The League of Nations was a consensus-based voting system, which meant everyone had to agree basically giving anyone a veto because if they voted no well everyone had to agree so no means it's not going to go it's not going to pass so this meant it was impossible to pass anything and this is one of the reasons as to why it failed because it couldn't pass anything people would just end up doing what they wanted unilaterally so tiny little states could also be uh, effectively uh, blocking progress if they wanted to When you have these great powers wanting to do something, these tiny little states may be actually uh, effectively blocking any meaningful progress. So when the great powers during the closing years of World War II decided to set up the UN, they still wanted to have the veto power, but only for themselves, because they felt, well, we're the most important powers in the world, we're winning the war, we have military might more than anyone So really, it only matters if we don't agree. And also, it's easier to try and convince only one power to not vote no than it is to, like, 20 or 30 smaller countries. So the veto was retained, but only for the victors. And in a way, it has been a blessing and a curse. The veto in the P5 has meant more progress than the League of Nations, but also issues that affect the big powers directly never get resolved because they veto them so I think now is a perfect opportunity to delve into the veto power in a bit more significant detail and see what the criticism of it is and has there ever been a reform effort of the veto power and what efforts are being made now so in my opinion the veto power is probably the most contentious issue more than representation. Uh, because that's actually quite understandable as to why that's an issue. Many countries have reportedly referred to the veto as defective, as it basically allows the P5 to block any meaningful action on issues. The veto has been used since its inception to uh, the latest figures I could get, which was the 16th of December 2020. It's been used 293 times. I'll give you a breakdown of who, who's used them and how much. So over the years, the USSR, the Soviet Union and Russia has cast a total of 143 vetoes, which is close to half of all vetoes. The US cast its first of its 83 vetoes to date on the 17th of March 1970. The USSR at that point had cast already 107 vetoes. And since 1970, the US has used its veto far more than any other permanent member, most frequently to block decisions that it regards as detrimental to the interests of Israel. The UK has used its veto 32 times, the first uh, first being uh, taking place uh, 30th of October 1956 during the Suez Crisis, and France applied its veto for the first time in 1946, with respect to the Spanish question, and has cast it a total of 18 times. China has used the veto 16 times, with the first one uh, being the 14th of December 1955, which was cast back then by just the Republic of China, and the remaining 13 has been used by the People's Republic of China, after it succeeded the Republic of China as a permanent member. So all in all, it's been used a lot, and often to defend the national interests of the P5, which goes against the spirit of the whole idea of the Security Council, which is to defend international peace and security, and not national interests. Because when that happens, we return to one of the issues that caused the League of Nations to uh, to fail. The veto has often been used as well in huge humanitarian issues, issues that required absolutely immediate attention. Like I said, the US will consistently veto anything about Israel, Russia vetoed a resolution that condemned and established a ceasefire to its invasion of Ukraine, and China has vetoed anything about its human rights abuses towards its Uighur uh, Muslim m- minority. But what's also important, and something that not many people realise, is something called the hidden veto. Now, this is a term coined uh, coined to describe the threat of a veto. The mere threat that one of the powers will use a veto means that often many draft resolutions never even reach the tables of the Security Council in a public domain. Because often, much of the Security Council discussions are behind closed doors, where uh, countries are more forceful in their speaking, more forceful in pressuring um, countries to agree to it, And this is often where countries will immediately say no i'm not going to vote on anything that uh, we propose today i'll just veto it so often many draft resolutions never even come to public discussion so we often never know what they're even talking about in that case countries don't feel willing to invest huge amounts of time and diplomatic effort if one of the p5s have uh, has expressed that they will vote no on any proposals This hidden veto is a true stain on the Security Council because at least with actual vetoes, it's pretty obvious that one of the P5 may be trying to protect its national interests or has pretty pathetic reasons as to vote no. Whereas with a hidden veto, the international community is left waiting in the dark as to why the Security Council is not even going to discuss issues or or major crises. And one example of the hidden veto is the Rwanda genocide. France and the United States, behind closed doors, threatened to veto any resolution that used the word genocide, which led to slow progress being made to actually tackle one of the world's greatest human rights abuses ever. One common official figure estimated that 800,000 people died, with many more, on top of this number, being mutilated, raped and severely injured. And this is a true stain on not just humanity, but on the Security Council. And there are just many more examples on issues relating to crimes against humanity, which are either ignored by the Security Council, or are just too slow to act because of vetoes and and hidden vetoes. And I think this criticism is truly fair. And often the P5 will veto issues relating to them, so it gives them just a free ride to do what they want, when they want, because, well, they will just veto any action on themselves. So has anything actually been done to try and reform the veto power? This is a bit complicated. It's a slightly yes and a slightly no. Many countries have abandoned any meaningful action uh, in trying to change the veto power. And what I mean by this is that countries have stopped trying to change the UN Charter uh for example to make official change to the veto power because another issue arises is that if you try to change the charter it needs the p5 approval and if you're going to change the charter to uh, affect their voting rights well they'll just veto it so it's impossible to change it officially so what countries are trying to do is pressure diplomatically on the p5 to voluntarily restrict their use of the veto on issues relating to human rights abuses genocide and other humanitarian issues. And you know what? Progress has been made. Quite significant progress, actually. Not really fundamentally in the text of the Charter, but countries like the UK and France are committed to voluntarily uh, restricting their use of the veto. And they support a change to the code of conduct that means the Security Council will Pledge to support credible Security Council action against crimes of mass atrocity, genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. This initiative is called the Responsibility to Protect and it has attracted huge support within the whole of the United Nations. And the fact that two of the five permanent members are starting to see that the veto power is weakening the credibility of the Security Council is significant because this approach could prevent inaction on huge humanitarian crises, which the UNSC has been slow to act on because of veto issues. Whilst, of course, the other three of the P5 haven't done so, the, the Right to Protect, or R2P, has actually got verbal support from the likes of Russia and China. So potentially, and I mean really, really slim, slim, slim chance, could actually agree to something like this in the future some form of voluntary restraint but official policy from russia and china is still opposed to any restriction or change to the veto power the us has no real known policy on the veto power but it is pretty clear that they would do anything to stop any restrictions on this power and at the end of the day even if they all did agree it's voluntary. They can still do what they want. The veto power is still there there to be used as of when they please. So there really isn't any huge challenges um, that uh, are going on to restrict the, um, the veto power. But this isn't the only issue that's affecting the Security Council. It's the major issue, I feel, but not the only issue. And I mentioned something about representation earlier in this podcast. The Security Council is not truly representative at all, especially amongst the P5. There are no African countries, no Middle Eastern countries in the P5, there's no Latin American countries, there are three Western powers, there are also two human rights abuses and two authoritarian leaders as well. However, unlike the veto, in the past there has been hugely successful reform efforts, meaningful reform efforts to make it just a little bit more representative. In 1965 the Security Council increased the number of non-permanent seats from six to ten and there is a quota for how many nations from each region must be a non-permanent member. So five of the ten go to African and Asian states, two to Latin American states and two to the Western European and other group states, and one to Eastern European states. The aim of this was now to give a voice to different regions of members of the UN. This, however, has been the last meaningful change to the UNSC, and many critics feel that an unchanged UNSC will become increasingly ineffective in addressing today's security challenges which demand cohesive, broad-based, multilateral responses. And with the P5 holding the ultimate power of the UNSC, calls have come from all around the United Nations to expand the permanent membership seats to include more regional powers. Regional powers have totally changed since 1945, and thus representation must do as well. So many of the countries which have been touted to uh, be next permanent members are the likes of Japan, Germany, India and Brazil. These are the favourites for permanent representation and, in my opinion, I feel would make an effective change to the United Nations Security Council representation. These nations contribute some of the largest sums to the UN budgets and they have some of the world's biggest populations They are also regional powers. The economic climate has totally changed since 1945, and some of the current P5 members are no longer leading states for economic growth in the world, such as France and the United Kingdom. Why are they still there? And the likes of Germany, who is the leading power in Europe, there. Why is India not there, one of the fastest growing countries in the world? The representation issue now needs to be addressed more than ever. So the likes of Japan, Germany, India, and Brazil make perfect contenders for permanent membership. But like anything with the United Nations, nothing is ever simple. China would most definitely block India and Japan from being a permanent member because it goes against their national interests. Russia would likely block Germany because you then have four uh, Western powers on the Security Council, which would which would go against Russian national interests. So, if the United Nations Security Council cannot be fully representative and remains of just former imperial powers and former World War II powers, then less and less countries will want to engage and even follow the rulings by the Security Council. And this will harm international peace and security. And we do not want to return to the failures that plagued the League of Nations. Because when the international community do not engage with each other, misunderstanding increases, and misunderstanding often than not leads to conflict. So can the United Nations Security Council reform? I think it can, but it's going to be a lot of hard work, because the P5 will always, and I mean always, protect their interests. But in a way, you can't really blame them for doing that, because almost every country would do the same. But when they, the great powers, put their national interests over that of the international community, especially in cases of genocide and human rights abuses, it is the poor humans in the developing nations that suffer. So the P5 really need to pull their socks up and come together and actually work towards a better future, a future where genocide human rights abuses, and crimes against humanity are a thing of the past. Or if they do, even if they do exist, the international community acts quickly, together, as a collective. So, all in all, I think the United Nations Security Council can reform. Do I see it doing so in the future? No. But I think as the period goes on, and as the P5C that they're Uh, veto power, the lack of representation is harming the credibility, they will be forced to act. And I think it will be uh, for the best. Representation needs to increase and the veto power needs to be reformed. So that's the end of today's episode. And as I was recording this episode, um, the United Nations Security Council was actually about to meet to discuss the issues going on in Myanmar after the military coup that has gone on there. So what will the United Nations Security Council decide? Will the veto power be used? Is some questions that I will wait to see what happens. And the Myanmar coup is something that I do want to cover uh, in this podcast, but I think it's worth seeing how this whole issue plays out before we reach some conclusions on this historical moment in Myanmar uh, politics. So thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. And please do go back and check out my other episodes, which I humbly say are very good. And in next time's episode, which is in two weeks' time, we will discuss the first Gulf War. Why? Because uh, it's been 30 years since the end of the 42-day war. So we'll look at what happened uh, and its aftermath on international politics because its effects are still being felt today. Um, So please do tune in next time to discuss this UN-sanctioned war. Uh, So thank you for listening, and goodbye.